Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast where we talk about nonfiction books. This week, I'm joined by Malcolm Harris. Malcolm Harris is the author of three books, Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, great title. Uh, That's the history since the end of history, and his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World. Malcolm, you're currently living in uh, Philadelphia, right? And working for The Inquiry? I'm actually in uh, Washington, D.C., writing books full-time these days. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's I guess that's the dream. Before we get, like, super into the book talk, I wanted to ask, uh, how was it trying to sell a 720-page book to a publisher? Well, let me tell you, the easy way to do that is to not tell them how long it's going to be <laughs> before you write it and tell them it's one-third as long, which is, I think, what I sold it at. But then when you tell them that it's going to be three times as long as you said it was going to be, you still have to hit the same deadline, or at least I tried (laughs) to hit this. I did hit the same deadline. Um, So what I found is my editor was surprisingly receptive to the idea of me doing three times as much work in the same amount of time for the same amount of money. But I guess maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. Wow, that is incredible because, I mean, if if people kind of don't know the publishing world too much, I mean, one of the things that goes into like the calculation of if someone picks up a book is oftentimes, you know, the length is like, you know, the cost per printing goes up, you know, quite drastically the longer a book is. And that's typically why we don't see a ton of really long books outside of the genres that are like a little bit more established. And you're now in kind of this rarefied position of having a massive history book out. And I did want to take note that you also got a blurb by one of my also like heroes of the history genre. Uh, Greg Grandin uh, gave you a little blurb for your book. And I think that's just like, that's amazing. He's just one of the best. He's one of the best out there. Yeah, totally. And a very, obviously very credentialed historian who, with a cold call from me, uh, gave me my non-credentialed ass a, a really nice uh, review based on also an early version of the book too. So I appreciate him sort of like projecting that refining process forward. I like to think that his review describes the final book better than the version that he got, which is uh, which was a little shakier. So that was, I, I can't say enough nice things about Greg because that was uh, above and beyond. He had no, usually you think these blurbs and stuff, you got to know somebody or comes through some professional network or academic background or whatever. And he's, you know, as credentialed a historian as you can get basically these days. Walter Johnson as well, who gave me my other pre-publication blurb. And both of them were so considerate and so willing to just like read this giant book and give me like really positive blurbs, even though you know, within the history discipline, I, I rank nowhere. <laughs> Do you have a, um, like a professional degree in history or is it? I spent three years at the University of Maryland. That is my, that is my higher education experience. I have a, nice. a bachelor's in English literature and government and politics. That's really cool. I mean, I, cause I think in some way, like me, I love just like reading history books and almost always every single history book is written by you know, someone with a PhD. And it's cool to like see people breaking into the history genre that aren't producing, you know, just like the most generic pop history imaginable (laughs) that like, you know, some of them are quite readable, but your book is like an actual in-depth analysis of California and so many other like related topics. So it is cool that the professional barrier just 
isn't always there as much as people think it is. Yeah, I'll, I think as Quinn Slobodian, who also has a new book out, who got in trouble in, on Twitter a little while back, uh, saying that you don't you don't need a PhD to do, in history to do history. You just need to read the books <laughs> like everyone who does a PhD in history does. And there were a, a variety of opinions uh, expressed uh, in regard to that. And it was interesting for me to see those people talking about those things as someone who <laughs> sort of did do that. And yeah, so far, yeah. in, in you know, as far as those, uh, the critical process has done all right. You know, the, no historian has said like, oh, you got this wrong or like, this is not actually history or whatever. In fact, people have been really nice and said, oh, this is like, you know, transcends our disciplinary boundaries and shows why we need this kind of outside view that doesn't like draw lines between different parts of history and uh, like scholarship and uh, the past in trying to understand it. So people have been really, for the most part, really, really positive as far as the like historian profession goes and writers of history as far as I've seen. Although, you know, some rumblings of people who have different like uh, takes on Bay Area history and people whose books I've reviewed poorly or, you know, whatever. There's always some of that. But overall, people have been like super nice. I did see, I was just checking the Goodreads earlier, and um, the third, or the, like, the second highest Goodreads rating starts with, as a Stanford alum. And I was like, all right, now, like, maybe I don't need to <laughs> read the full <laughs> analysis as this one. But you did a little while back, you got a uh, kind of uh, profile of the book, a review from the New York Times, which was a just a snarky <laughs> little tidbit that had some praise, had some, you know, a little bit of backlash, but I'm so grateful that this book has been covered because I think it's a really incredibly readable and approachable uh, large topic about things that we should be talking about. So, I mean, all press is good press, I guess. Well, I I got to give a, press, a shout out. I don't think that's true. You can definitely get bad press for a book. <laughs> uh, and people know the difference. Even And even when your book gets, you know, a high volume of press and a high volume of sales, and it seems generally positive, I would think of something like you know, Isabel Wil- Wilkerson's uh, later book, Cast, you know, mm-hmm. which is a very, very soon nonfiction writers would uh, would kill for that book. Uh, but it got some pretty, like, brutal, incisive reviews. Including uh, me. I got, a, I made a viral video on it that uh, had, I would say, hundreds of really negative comments towards me about my review of that one. Well, but there was, you know, Boston Review or other, you know, like scholarly and public scholarly outlets sort of, you know, analyzed it with those standards, with the standards of the profession, but geared towards the public and published some like really strong negative reviews of the book. And so for someone like me, uh, you know, for me, that, that reads like a negative reception of the book, even though, you know, Goodreads or whatever other like statistical ranking of the book has it really high and it sold a lot of copies and it's on end of year lists or whatever. It looks like a success, but as a critic, like that's how I understand the reception is like, what, what was the strongest critical response? What was their take in general? And for me, I feel like the strongest critical responses to, to mine were really positive. And I feel like super lucky that, you know, Jonathan Lethem's review in the nation or, you know, I can't even remember what like the the nice reviews of the book were. Were the <laughs> were like 
as far as I'm concerned as a critic, obviously I'm biased, but still the strongest, most well-written, most thoughtful reviews of the book. Whereas the New York Times review was clearly like the most negative uh, out of all the ones that it got, but was also, I think, one of the ones that sort of declined to engage with the book. And even like conservative publications like the American Spectator gave like thoughtful, good reviews. I thought, even though I go, we don't really like this commie guy. And like, obviously we think he's crazy, but like the book's pretty good here, here, and here. And we disagree here or whatever. And the Times didn't do that. They did like a real red baiting review and they published it yeah. the day of publication, which is not always what happens. So I, you know, you try not to take it personally or whatever, especially as a, like yourself, a book critic, but that didn't end up defining the reception of the book, I don't think. So I you know, could not have asked for more in terms of people engaging with it. People are still engaging with it. There was another review in the Chronicle of Higher Education this week that I thought was really thoughtful. So could not be, in addition to historians, book critics, uh, and the media there have been really great. I also got to give credit to Alyssa Persons, who's the publicist over at Little Brown. Um, you know, we can do book inside baseball a little bit here on the... <laughs> Uh, the Book Talk podcast, because uh, she just totally killed it. She did such an awesome job uh, handling the publicity on this one. Yeah, how has this book felt like being out in the world with the kind of, uh, the I guess, like the birth of book influencing in some way? I mean, Book Talk became such a massive part of the book world. And I mean, positives and negatives about that, even from my perspective, but I'm just curious kind of what your your thoughts on this was. I mean, especially with having a, uh, you know, this new book out and having previous books that were, you know, published before kind of the, the birth of the book influencing world. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's hard to compare like this one to my first one. And then the, the, my, my second book, not only was it with a smaller publisher and it was an anthology of my previous writing, but it came out in the end of February, 2020. So like mm. literally at the beginning of the pandemic, all the events, I had one event at the strand and then the rest of them were canceled. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard to compare like that reception or the reception of my first book to this one, which has been really strong. So again, want to give credit to Alyssa because uh, there's someone I can see who changed. Yeah. She was uh, handling publicity. <laughs> she did like a really awesome job. I was the same both times, but I definitely like learned a lot more. Um, as far as book talk, it seems like book talk's influence is really uneven. I've seen yeah. it, like the only person, the only writer I know um, who it's really like hit for is Chelsea Summers. Uh, it's like, it's like I've seen like a couple uh, books that it's hit for, but I don't think I haven't seen like a ton. Of, you know, you've probably guided some people to buy my book on book talk, but <laughs> beside from you. If you look on Book Talk for Palo Alto, I think mostly you get James Franco uh, at people talking about James Franco oh, yeah. and the movie Palo Alto and James Franco and the book Palo Alto and James Franco, which is, I guess, somewhat understandable, makes maybe appeals more to the that part of Book Talk. Uh, I feel like the sales of my book has been really conventional. It's like a lot of people reading print reviews, people hearing me on the radio. Definitely, mm -hmm. there are a lot more podcasts these days, so doing podcasts makes a difference. But, like, people coming to events and buying books at the bookstore, uh, it's really, like, like independent bookstores have been the ones who have been selling this book the most. Yeah, in my—I I do a lot of independent bookstore shopping just, uh, you know, 
just for books, but also just like I like going to bookstores. It's like my one social activity I really <laughs> try and like, or like the one time I get out of the house is for that. And I have seen your book at basically every single independent bookstore I've been in in the last you know, like six months or so that, I mean, every single one of them has a copy and it's, you know, prominently displayed. And it's great to see that because, you know, independent bookstores, you know, are a lot more choosy with the products that they bring in. And um, I did <laughs> literally last week saw someone walking around uh, Barnes and Noble with a, the, a copy of your book. And I wanted huh. to go up and say something and be like, yeah, yeah, you're going to like this one. And I, <laughs> I kind of chickened out last second, but it's it's great to see your book out in the world. I've been so happy that people are picking it up. Yeah, I mean, the booksellers have really been, to give another, like, professional groups and kudos, independent booksellers have really been pushing it, and I know that that makes a big difference. So to have them, like, take the time to really look at this book, which is, uh, as you know, like, large and intimidating, and that's not, like... You don't get paid for that part of the job if you're a bookseller necessarily to like read books that are upcoming and know about them and uh, be able to recommend them and order a bunch. So I still have like these these like thank you postcards that I printed that I'm going to send to like some a bunch of the best selling uh, independent bookstores to say like thank you for selling so many books because I really it's like that's an active thing right that doesn't yeah. just happen right. Um, so in addition to historians and book critics and reviewers, uh, booksellers have been totally in my corner this time around, and I can't, can't thank them enough. I would also be remiss if I didn't talk about the design of the book, which is so, like, arresting. So and, like, there's one thing for, like, the design to look cool, but, like, if you actually like, see it in person, the way it's printed looks so nice. Like, I've never seen a book cover, like, look that nice. And that's all Greg Kulik, who designed the book, Jacket. He's a, like, total pro at Little Brown. Um, I think, like, one thing that testifies to how good it is is that it has nothing, it is, like, in no way a projection of my personality at all. Uh, like, I would never have, like, created that book cover as a cover for the book. It never would have, like, occurred to me in a 100 years. And yet now I could, like, never think about it any differently. And it's so much better than some, like, austere black and white, whatever, like, yeah. that I would have picked would have been. Or just, like, the California flag or something, you know, something yeah. a little bit more generic. Or, like, too, like, vintage Like, he, he did such a good job synthesizing, like, present contemporary aesthetics and, like, the railroad era serif fonts and, you know... He, it looks awesome, and I can say I can like rant all day about how great it is because I had nothing to do with it. Also, the fact that the book is it's long and it's huge, but it's really like compact. It ended up being way like smaller than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and if you look at the UK version, it's like three quarters of an inch thicker. And I mm. still don't know how they manage that. Like it's really incredible. Uh, so all I can do is thank Ben Allen, who is the the production uh, editor on the book, because again, like it's wizardry. Like you gotta like you hold it up <laughs> to books, other books that look the same length, and it's like two hundred pages longer. It's incredible. It's a really startling thing. A lot of the times when I I'll hold up a book and it'll be you know it's just like oh a normal sized book, and then you realize it's like five hundred pages, and then you hold up another book that just seems massive and it's three hundred and forty pages, and it's just there's so many inconsistencies kind of with how, uh, I mean, they're printed properly, but they, you cannot judge by just like looking at a book 
exactly how long it's going to be or how long it's going to take you to read it. And uh, your book is, it's a nice, you know, you would call it like the doorstopper size, but like approachable at the same time. I mean, there's, yeah. there's so many books out there. I just recently read American Prometheus, which is literally one page longer than yours, according to Goodreads. It is just like a unmovable brick of a book. <laughs> like right? It must just... be it's like much larger than mine, even though they're, <laughs> yeah. they're the same size. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty incredible. I mean, I had a moment before production had done their thing where I'd, you know, they tell you how many pages it was going to be. And I was like looking at my bookshelf, pulling books, being like, okay, well, it's, it can't be longer than this one. It can't be longer than like <laughs> Debt by Graeber. You know, that's a huge yeah. book. And then you pull that one and you're like, 498 pages or whatever. <laughs> right. Like, what the hell? Like, yeah. you fucking slacker. Like, and so I'm pulling and the only thing I'm like, you know, it's like War and Peace. And you're like, oh God, I'm screwed. Like, no <laughs> one's going to buy this book. It's going to be a foot thick. Uh, and so then when it actually, when I got it out of the box and held it, I was shocked. In fact, I was a little disappointed because I was like, oh man, people aren't going to think it's quite as impressive as they would <laughs> if it was a foot and a half thick, but much better overall. When they start reading it, they will realize it's very impressive. I want to get into kind of uh, how this book came about. You grew up in Palo Alto, but like at kind of what stage or like what was happening that like got you started on the process of writing this book? I mean, was it, you know, books that you were reading? Was it just like watching society and capitalism in California just completely kind of take over, <laughs> I don't know, social prominence in some way? I mean, like what what kind of sparked this for you? I mean, that's all part of it. But really the the thing that pushed me to write it was that I had to write another book because it's my job. Um, <laughs> and so it was time to sell another book and get to work. And freelance Short form writing is is a tough game. Freelance long form writing is a tough game. Book writing is a tough game too, but I think I'm a little bit better suited to it because I'm really disciplined and self-directed. And so I can make a plan to write 250,000 words, say, over a year and then actually do it. How long was the research project for this? And were you doing it in conjunction with writing it as well? I did some research. but So I, I've been used a lot of research from my entire life, you know, since mm -hmm. reading books. And it was interesting going back to, like, books that I worked with in high school or whatever and going back through them because they were important to this project. But I started the project around the beginning of the pandemic, uh, so March 2020, and then I turned in my draft November 2021, I think. Wow. And so I was, re I was reading the entire time because you yeah. had to be reading the entire time, period, uh, but there was a couple, a few months at the beginning where I was just reading all day. And that's great because I would, this was the beginning of pandemic. Uh, I was living, I think, by myself at that point. I would take a stack of books to the park in the morning along with, that, you know, my glass of iced coffee and just <laughs> sit in the park and just read through and flag and note and do my whole like note taking process and just process these books go home, eat some lunch, come back, you know, and just read and spend nine hours a day just going through stacks of research. I didn't, couldn't access, you know, university archives, partly because I'm uh, under-credentialed, but mostly because it was the pandemic. Mm. And so it was going right. to, when I was getting started, it was going to be like, okay, it might be a hassle to get into some of these archives because you are not degree-seeking student and you're not a, like, professional scholar, but, like, maybe you will sneak through with, some people who know about your work or whatever. But then when it was clear that the pandemic was shutting everything down, then it was like, we're not even letting our own people 
in to see stuff. We're certainly not letting like randos in. Sorry, <laughs> not even sorry. They were not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Just a calmly worded email. But that's but honestly, I think that was for the better because a lot of those archives that I would have been looking through were archives that are already the basis for other projects, mm-hmm. uh, historical projects in the same area. And said, so I got pushed towards newer uh, collections, things that would have been digitized recently, which is doesn't necessarily mean they're like newer objects. A lot of it was like, you know, computer magazines from the 70s that had just been digitized. It's like, okay, people haven't worked through these yet. They're useful for me. I, I'm looking for them because they're at hand, but they also happen to be things that they haven't been worked through. Uh, the When I talk about Charles Marvin and the... Palo Alto stock farm at the beginning of the book and the Palo Alto system and the raising horses, which ended up being a really important thing for, for my book and my story, like that manual by Charles Marvin about the care of the trotting horse and the setting up of the Palo Alto stock farm um, had recently been digitized and put on Google books. And so if you're a, you know, scholar writing a book about Palo Alto in 1992, you don't have that kind of access to that archival document like you might be able to search out that book but probably you won't be able to and most Mm -hmm. of the people who wrote on it didn't and so it became again sort of competitive advantage for my work to be able to use these digital resources Um, and I think I gave me a different perspective on some of the things that have been written with the uh, California business archives as their like frame because that's so many of the archives related to the South Bay. There was, um, I have to say, there was more horse conversations in this book than I uh, anticipated going into the book. But kind of one of the backbones of, I mean, there's so many little things in this book, but transportation plays a, a really big role in like the history of Palo Alto from like the horse breeding and, and becoming the Stanford Way and then how the railroad system conjoins and and then Palo Alto being kind of a birthplace of like the modern transportation of Uber and Tesla as having a huge role over there and specifically like the ways that the loop has completely broken people's minds about what transportation should be. Was there any like big, when you kind of like look at the book now or or maybe when you were doing research, were there any like big topics that you you were really fascinated in that kind of like kept, you know, having more strings to pull along the way. Totally. The biggest one was Herbert Hoover, who I did not originally plan to write about. You know, when I'm writing this history, it's not a sort of history from below where I'm going to counterpose the working class history instead of doing the history of great men. It's a history of capital. And so you've got to do both the capitalist class and the working class because it's their interrelationship uh, that is the subject there. But at the same time, I was like, I'm not going to write a a book about some president, right? This isn't like a a history book about some obscure president in the early 20th century that no one really cares about, which is how I had previously thought about Herbert Hoover, mostly um, as, you know, the failure counterpoint to FDR, right? He's the one who crashed the economy in the Great Depression. He stands for, like, right-wing economics and how it doesn't work. And, like, that's when people think of Hoover, they think of, if they think of him at all, uh, they think of, like, that, maybe the dam, 
and maybe they're like the Hoover Institution, which is a like sinister organization. But I don't think they, if they know about the Hoover Institution, they probably think it's like J. Edgar Hoover, right? Like the more famous yeah. Hoover, the more recently biographied Hoover. Oh, uh, right. There's been like five or six biographies of him in the last few years. Boy, and but uh, I don't think I've seen a Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover <laughs> biography in quite some time. Although there are definitely some, there are like, Again, like presidents get biographied, you know, <laughs> like Herbert yeah, Hoover's yeah, got yeah. probably got his share of biographies. A lot of them, uh, you know, put out or co-signed by his institution, which uh, continues to be pretty influential. But he, you know, he's part of Stanford's university's first graduating class in 1895, and he doesn't die until 1964. And so he links like literal Silicon Valley, where they're producing silicon chips for the space race like that age of Silicon Valley with its foundation, like the first class of Stanford University at the end of the 19th century. And you think of these as like totally divorced time periods, um, you know, with generations in between them. Because we're still, when he's in that first class of Stanford University, we're still talking about like the colonization of California functionally by Anglo-Americans. And... To see one guy, and not just any one guy, but like a very, very, very important historical guy whose tendrils go out in all these different directions and who has all these different relationships and whose life is characterized by all of these different relationships with lots of different people constantly. To have him just like constantly just popping up through the history, it made it really hard to stop writing about him. And I did have to eventually, like, you got to cut it off at some point, but there are probably like 30 pages in this book about just straight up about Herbert Hoover. Probably more pages about him than any other individual person, including Lee Stanford, including David Packard, including any of the like rebels that I talked about, like H. Bruce Franklin, certainly more than like Steve Jobs. Elon Musk gets like a single mention in the book, maybe. Herbert Hoover just like ends up being the man of the 20th century as far as this like book understands. Well, it's also such a great way to, like, view the, like, power, because I think, like, in the American consciousness, like we said, like or like you said, we kind of, I think in some sense have just, like, kind of pushed Hoover out of, like, a lot of public conversations, and he hangs over kind of a specter of, especially, you know, after his presidency in these scenes, and I think it's kind of like an often kind of forgotten part of looking at this history that I found really incredibly fascinating. Yeah, and that the guys who come together to really create Silicon Valley are really only a couple links, maybe even if that, removed from Hoover himself. So the Drapers are one of the, like, probably the first family of venture capital in the Bay Area. And, like, General Draper, great-grandpa Draper, who is now great-grandpa Draper— was friends with Hoover himself, you know, was in, and was like working with him in Germany to decide how many calories German coal workers got to eat. And then after that, moves to Silicon Valley, which is becoming Silicon Valley before it's become Silicon Valley, to start investing in venture capital. And like, I don't think that's a, that's not a coincidence that he, you know, goes from working with Hoover to moving to Palo Alto. It's that this, his connections and his, his network really creates this place in the post-war era and a firm like Ampex, uh, which people don't really like know about, but plays like a very important role in the history of Silicon Valley, but also in the history of defense and intelligence contracting, is again like 
half a foot maybe away from Herbert Hoover itself. And then from that, very quickly spins off companies like Oracle, which still exists now, which is still a huge defense contractor. Something like Salesforce then spins off of Oracle. And again, so we're just like, we're a couple steps away from Herbert Hoover himself. And anything in that area really is still to this day. And that's crazy. Like, I did not, I did not see that coming. <laughs> did you have a favorite part of uh, either, you know, the writing or the research? Was there, like, a section in the book that you were just really, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure writing this book, you're passionate about the whole thing. But was there any part that in particular, like, really grabbed you? Um, I think, like, historicizing East Bay punk music was pretty fun. <laughs> okay. Understanding that. Because that was, like, it was where we're really getting to the part of the story where I remember it. And so put connecting, you know, like Op Ivy to, to like the revolutionary struggles of the peninsula in the early 70s, which is not, again, not that far. Like it, like maximum rock and roll, the zine comes out of the, you know, Peninsula Red Guard, which is a Maoist uh, organization in the early 70s. And it, it comes out of that scene at very least. And seeing that I was only, you know, a couple of years removed, right? I was like the younger brother of that situation was crazy. And to bring something that I had taken for granted into this historical story and really like the idea that you write enough history, eventually you're going to run into yourself and that you're going to like see somebody and you're going to zoom in and you're like, wait a minute, like that's me. Like that's the back of my own head, you know, like Holy shit, like I found it. Uh, and like you re-encounter yourself through the writing of history. That process is really cool and was definitely part of what I ended up uh, loving about the book and loving about the process of writing it. It's, uh, it is that you like estrange yourself from yourself and re-encounter yourself as a historical object mm. or as like a part of history. That's very cool. And I like understood more about like, oh, why was there this like weird left wing movement in the suburban town where I grew up? Well, it has this like history going back to the 19th century. And like, here's where it comes from. And like you fast forward enough and you can find yourself. It is really cool. I I had kind of, you know, reading it last year, I was like, I, I was like, I wonder if like on the last page of the book, if we're going to get like you know, a subtle true anon drop, you know, or just like <laughs> how how close to the present are we gonna get? But it is it is really cool. And it's also, you know, it's a book that is very timely, but also will stay timely because uh, the history of Palo Alto is kind of only in some sense, or their like grasp on culture is kind of only expanding in some way because I think <laughs> we have had so much news you know, out of Meta's failures and rises and, you know, Twitter now is just a kind of a shit show of a platform. Do you ever wish uh, that, like, in uh, in 10 years you could add, you know, the next chapter to it? And where we're, are you thinking about kind of where the history of or where the future of Palo Alto is going after you've done so much research into this? Well, maybe I'll, I'll probably add a new preface or afterward for the paperback, which will probably be next year, I think. So I'll get to answer some of that. It is funny that like since I started writing it, which again, 2020, so much had changed and the role of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley and the tech industry 
expanded so much over that period and like the amount of social resources that they had access to ballooned uh, and the role that they played in our everyday life, I think also ballooned. And so when I was started writing, I was kind of worried that one of the critiques I was going to get is like, how Alto isn't that important. Like mm-hmm. your subject isn't really that important. This is just like, you only think it's important because you grew up there, but like, San Francisco is what's important. Palo Alto is just some suburb. It doesn't matter. No one has said that. Like, (laughs) zero people. And in fact, people, (laughs) on the contrary, people around the world are interested in Palo Alto. And it's being translated into German now because people are interested in Palo Alto because it's become, like, more and more important to people's everyday lives. uh, And they're interested in that history. And it turns out that that history is important. I do think it's funny that when it came out, was just around the like cryptocurrency explosion and Sam Bankman-Fried and the downfall of Sam Bankman-Fried. And a lot of people were like, oh, don't you wish that you could have written about that? It's such a perfect example. And what I told them was, no, I don't wish that at all. In fact, I could have written about that. I could have done a cryptocurrency chapter at the end using this as like the, the highest, most absurd example of what I was talking about. And histories of the Bay Area and the tech industry often will do that, will start and end with whatever the latest thing is. And they'll orient their perspective around like the big thing in the news that day. But my understanding based on all that history was that that was a relatively epiphenomenal thing, that it didn't matter that much. And that like Mm -hmm. we were not going to be talking about cryptocurrency in 10 years and that Sam Bankman-Fried was not going to matter in 10 years. And that Focusing on the story of the week in that way gives your book a short shelf life. Yeah. And I think I would say the same thing even with like, you know, OpenAI and Sam Altman like now. If you, I would make the same decision. And I made the same decision about Elon Musk where I was like, this guy is not what's important about this topic, the subject, into the future based on my research into the past. And instead, I talked about Peter Thiel, and I talked about the shift into prime defense contracting by tech companies, because I think that's what's actually going to matter. If you look historically, Mm -hmm. that's the tendency, and that's where people's attention should be, is the increasing interreliance of the tech industry in Palo Alto with the Pentagon and with Washington. And I think that's been correct. And I think, like, you know, not to mince words or whatever, but I think, like, you know, since I turned those words into my editor in November 2021... And I talked about exports on Taiwanese chip production in the book, right? Because, like, even though that wasn't a huge news issue at the time, it was clear to me that that was where the story was going. And it, it continues to be. And so, yeah, I think people should stick to the, to the analysis that I gave them, right? Like, you know, you should <laughs> like what I gave you because it was right the first time. Um, though I'm, I'll give you something more with the paperback, I'm sure. That's exciting. I am curious kind of how you see, just because I know you've been talking about this online, so I, I feel like you probably have thought about it a little bit. If you have any thoughts on kind of the Palo Alto in the region and specifically like how it is interacting with climate change at this point and, and maybe some thoughts on that, because I mean, I think like we would probably both, this is certainly what I think and I would assume you would agree, but like the history of the next 20 years will be written heavily by climate change, but climate change debates and policies and those types of things. And I'm curious if like how you've thought about where climate change like intersects with uh, Palo Alto specifically. Totally. 
I think the industry does a really good job making itself look totally disconnected from any like real world uh, resource usage, right? So take AI, right? When you say AI, you think it's like a software thing in the cloud and that doesn't affect global warming. In fact, that's an example of a uh, decoupling between economic growth and emissions because we're growing, instead of growing our economy by like building polluting stuff, we're growing our economy by writing better software, which will prevent us from having to build big polluting stuff because we'll get super efficient. And this is the story the Silicon Valley sort of tells about itself to the world about how it's creating a sustainable future, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's bullshit because somewhere um, there are a bunch of very, very, very hot computers. Uh, right? Chips. And what they're, they're very, very, very hot because they're using a ton of energy. And so one of the ways you cool them is you use water. And so you've got a system that is eating up energy and it's eating up water. Huge, huge amounts of it. And that they present us this software as free makes us think like, oh, well, it can't be using, using up fossil fuels or else it wouldn't be free. But it is. It's not free. <laughs> it's, in fact, very expensive. And what we're getting now is the free sample that they're trying to get us hooked on the product. And so at the same time as you see like Stanford building a climate change school or whatever, they're also throwing their institutional support behind industrial shifts like quote unquote AI that encourage further resource waste and create global warming problems we're looking at in the first place. Do you think... Palo Alto's history will, I mean, basically, the way that I read your book, at least, was it, it its cultural prevalence has only just continued to rise, but it's obviously been, like, a very, like, set trajectory that it's, you know, this, like, kind of intentional growth has so much going into it, which a lot of the book is about, but do you think it will continue to rise, or do you think we maybe are in for a different trajectory for Palo Alto? Well, I hope we have a different trajectory, but I don't think there's anything that's necessarily stopping it. Like, I don't think it's going to run out of steam on its own, which is yeah. sort of the idea that you hear from people. And you hear it, if you, especially if you read the history, you know, every decade since the creation of the first computer chip. It's like, well, surely it's over now. Like, now this is the end for Silicon Valley. Like, the bubble popped for sure here or whatever. And it's funny thinking about, like, we still take the story of the dot-com bubble for granted that, like, the dot-com bubble popped in 2000. And then you think about it, and you're like, well, what does that mean that the dot-com bubble popped in 2000? Like, if I invested $10 in Amazon in 2000, like, I would have a lot of money right now. It didn't, like, <laughs> obviously, like, a lot of those dot-coms uh, survived. The, like, industry made money. And if you read some of the more, like, chastened business responses to the bubble popping, they say stuff like, oh, supermarket delivery, that will never happen. Supermarkets are just too efficient. The idea of doing home grocery delivery is insane. No one would ever be able to afford that. It was just a bad idea from the first place. This kind of thinking is what led to the dot-com bubble being created in the first place. Now we know better. It'll never happen again. And that couldn't have been more wrong, right? Like, uh, like in fact, they play larger and larger roles, not just in our like domestic life, but around the world. And so, 
we have to look at what is actually inflating these bubbles, right? What is the bubble machine that keeps creating these industries that everyone has to pile tons and tons of money into? And again, like the so-called AI software is a great example where we had the collapse of crypto. We had the collapse of the metaverse uh, like stories and they ha- needed something else. And instead of being like, oh, we should really stop giving these guys tens of billions of dollars for whatever their crazy-ass story there is. They said, you got to hear this crazy story. Like, they're, they're gonna, they invented a computer that can do anything. And it's like, no, they didn't invent a computer that can do anything. Like, that's a story that you needed at this moment for something that can absorb tons and tons of capital with some promise of being able to return super rewards on that. And that's what this tech industry's promise is. And that's why people are in the, you know, even when belts are tightened, that doesn't mean they're going to start acting responsibly. Then investors are smart. Now we're only going to invest in things that are properly collateralized and show a reasonable rate of return. No, now that means, no, we got to go after the even higher rates of return because things are tight. And so only, only giving us a 20% return is what we're going to invest in. And so you push capital more into like ridiculous shit. And so it just gets worse. It's not going to like correct itself because that is not learning those lessons over time. In fact, it's learning the opposite lessons. And we can really look at what's happened since the last quote unquote pop, right? The last time we asked, is this over? Which again, we've done two or three rounds of this since the book came out which was earlier this year, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like a few months ago, right? There was like tech layoffs. We had the metaverse. We had crypto. Now we're into AI. And again, like six months. It really feels like in almost some sense, like with like the key figures of your book being Leland Stanford and Herbert Hoover, it seems like the history of the region is now even more decided off of like cults of personality instead of like actual formative figures. I mean, Leland Stanford, you can say a ton of bad stuff, but like was quite industrious. And now the, you know, the leaders, the face of Palo Alto are mostly just peddlers of some really shitty apps. Like it's just, it's, it's kind of astounding to me. They are uh, certainly less impressive from a like, tech inventor standpoint and haven't been for a long time. Like, like Steve Jobs didn't know shit. Uh, yeah. And everyone in the Bay knows that. Um, what he knew is how to yell at people to work faster. <laughs> but that ends up being like a very important quality. And same with yeah. Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates was, was much more talented than Steve Jobs was um, as a programmer in the 60s and 70s or whatever, but was not the best in the world or anything. No one says he was the best in the world. He didn't even write the program that, that launched his career. Somebody else did. What he was really good at was like having a banker mom and a lawyer dad and being able to be a, like a cutthroat business guy. And so that's what really like selected for those leaders at that point. And so now we can look at people like Sam Altman, someone like Elon Musk, and think like, okay, what are the pr- pressures that are selecting for people like this to be the leaders now? Because it's not that the same ones that were selecting for the leaders in the big science era in the 50s and 60s or the early 60s, where it was like the military academic industrial complex being like, you know, I like the cut of your jib, young man. You look like you're going to be a great science guy and you're going to be a big, great business leader. You look like tall and smart enough. 
why don't you learn about radios? You know, like, and which is how they picked people at that time. It was a state project to select based on really, I describe it in the book as shuffling the, the country's deck of white men, um, which is really, <laughs> it was very effective it was, and really important to winning World War II and to the economic uh, growth in the post-war era. It's obviously limited from that description, but it really, really did. They, they picked some winners, right? Like some of those guys were pretty good at some stuff. Um, and they trained them to be pretty good at some stuff. They trained them to be really good at some stuff. In the next generation, you saw the the guys like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, whose skills were privatized, right? They were produced and selected not by big government, big science, their teachers, whatever, but because they were the like most pain in the ass kid at their suburban school, suburban private school, or whatever. And now we get to the present day where. What really sets these guys apart is their inhuman ability to, like, gamble. At least, like, that's what I've come to understand it is. Is like, I am shocked that Elon Musk is not in a mental hospital, that he hasn't gone to rehab, <laughs> that he hasn't had a, like, personality collapse. Like, any other person, I think, that we would, like, even Kanye West couldn't keep it up, right? Like, Kanye yeah. West, like, broke pretty fast when he went off the deep end, like, recently, publicly. Like, they, like... He couldn't keep that up. Elon Musk has kept this up for months in ways that I find like pretty astounding, all while basically like gambling away tens of billions of dollars of other people's money. And not just other people's money, but like Gulf Royal families. <laughs> like I, I was I was not like take $10 billion from the Saudi royal family and hit the craps table every day for months. <laughs> Like, I would go to the hospital, right? Like, any normal person would be in the mental hospital because that would break your brain. This dude has kept it up for months. Same with Sam Altman, where, like, that dude did not spin gold out of straw. Like, he did not, like, take this technology of large language modules that everyone has known about for a very long time and invent something completely new. He dropped out of Stanford as a sophomore to build like app that got crushed by Foursquare, right? Like that's the that's his technical abilities. He is bluffing, like he is bluffing hardcore. And he bluffed to Microsoft. He says, like, yeah, you have to give me like billions of dollars and make me a supercomputer, like a giant supercomputer. And they went with it. Because again, like that's what the market needs right now. They needed to be bluffed like that. Yeah. That they they begged to be bluffed like that. This is the best thing that has happened in Microsoft in the 21st century, right? Like this is the best thing that happened in Microsoft since the Xbox. They are so happy that this, this snake oil salesman has come to bluff them, you know, told them to build the monorail or whatever. So the economy needs these guys and they don't really have something real to sell except for maybe the project and the idea of American world domination. Which And that's what the, I want to get to as the real project of the book was figuring out what's actually going on here. Is this place just a scam or is there a real historical project here? Um, and I think there is ultimately a real historical project here. And it's the American project into the 21st century, which is itself like an implausible project that they have been gambling on. I am curious if you have not saying that you're setting out to write it, but in the, the kind of perspective of your book of this uh, some cultural analysis and historical analysis of a very specific region or city, would there be any any other locations around the U.S. that you would, you would love to read another author's kind of take on kind of 
the way you formulated your book, but is there another city in the country that you think would be an important place to talk about as it's as a part of, you know, foundational part of modern capitalism? I mean, I have. There are a ton. Uh, I love them. Like, you know, the I couldn't have written this book without them, without the examples. The, in particular, uh, The Broken Heart of America by Walter Johnson, which, again, thanks for blurring my book, Walter. But it is about St. Louis over the same time period as my book, uh, you know, the 1870s to the present day, same, like, era, and does an excellent job connecting. What he does is he connects the the St. Louis Commune in the 1870s to the Ferguson Uprising. Uh, excellent book. Uh, and I think you can really, I mean, one of, the, one of the precepts of materialist dialectics is that the structure of the whole is implicit in its parts. And so you can, you can take any city in the United States, really any city in the world, and tell this length of history, this period of history with it. I think Palo Alto has something particular to say about it, but everything's gonna, everywhere's going to have something particular to say about it. So, and a lot of, again, a lot of those books exist. If you want one of those books for a city, like you should make sure it doesn't exist first. I would be very hesitant to say, like, oh, I want to read about Honolulu or I want to read about <laughs> San Bernardino or you know anywhere without checking to make sure it hasn't been done first. Because I think people have been done, doing a lot of that, and people take the places they're from and pe- places that they know about and subject them to the kind of analyses and frameworks that they have. And I think that's one of a, a really valuable way that we have to learn about the world. I'm curious if you've got any book recommendations for us, anything that you found during the research process or just any books that you've been loving recently. Is there anyone, any of those particular ones you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, let's, uh, let's do current books rather than the old ones. Cause I got to tell people what to read, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one one I tell people to check out is Red Internationalism, Anti-Imperialism, and Human Rights in the Global 60s and 70s by my friend Salar Mohandisi, which is a really cool history about how the discourse on the American left goes from anti-imperialism around Vietnam to human rights, also in South Asia, and what that, what that uh, transition looks like and the character of those movements, which has a lot to tell us. Uh, about our moment today, I think. So definitely check out Red Internationalism. Another one is Cage Kings by my friend Michael Thompson, Mike Thompson, uh, which is a history of the, the UFC, an important uh, institution in our present culture, and I think like wrapped up in Silicon Valley in ways that maybe people wouldn't expect, um, although now they understand that better with uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk threatening to beat each other up in public. So that's another one. Cage Kings by Mike Thompson. Definitely check that out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. And everyone should go out and check out Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope everyone goes out and checks out the book and makes a book talk about it. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, If you want to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. And this podcast is produced by Tone Support, so check out tone.support. Thank you, Malcolm, once again. Mm-hmm.